Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. Lord, we thank you for John and his family. Lord, we thank you for their servants' hearts. Lord, for taking care of us, for pointing us towards you. Lord, we pray that you would speak through him this morning, that any anxiety would leave him and your spirit would intervene. Lord, speak to us through him. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Matt. Good morning. You want to turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5? Appreciate that. Continuing on, we're week 6 in our message, our series on 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Do you guys remember the, the nose doctor from Maryville a couple years ago? You guys, remember, you guys know what I'm talking about, the nose doctor? Okay. Mark Weinberger, nose doctor convicted of fraud to be sentenced after five years in hiding. So this, is, this was a few years ago. This happened in Maryville in Northwest Indiana where this guy was, was uh, practicing. Um, the former Indiana surgeon arrested on a snowy Italian mountainside after five years on the run, was handed a stiff prison, sentence, prison term for billing insurers and patients for procedures he did not perform, with the federal judge saying he used patients like an ATM machine. Weinberger ran his medical office like a factory, saying he moved patients through in volume so he could earn more than $30 million in three years before he fled. He, he has left behind a trail unlike that of any previous doctor in the U.S., one in which he saddled a wife with more than $6 million in debts and pushed his own father into deep financial trouble. He left behind mountains of public documents claiming that in the name of sheer greed, he performed hundreds of sinus-related surgeries that not only were completely unnecessary, but also made some patients' conditions worse left behind accusations that he scared patients to ha- into having surgery by showing them hideous but phony images of their supposed condition. He left behind alleged mi- misdiagnoses in which he failed to detect throat cancer in a woman who subsequently died and missed a tumor on the pituitary gland of an 8-year-old girl while giving her sinus surgery she never should have had because her sinuses were not yet fully formed. He left behind a criminal indictment in federal court on 22 counts of health care fraud, left behind more than 350 malpractice suits that have been filed against him, left behind a court deposition in which an eminent medical expert called him a disgrace to his profession and the worst doctor he's ever encountered. Can you believe that? That's right here in our backyard. Right, that's the nose doctor. If you said nose doctor from Maryville, if you want to Google that, it'd be all over the place. So careless and greedy that he even took advantage of an eight-year-old girl. It's shocking. When you go to a doctor, when you go to a doctor, you want them to give you the truth. You want them to give you the truth, not not kind of, oh, here's what you need, here's what you don't. You want the truth of what is going on. And you would never ever want to go to a guy like this, right? Even though he's got a, a doctor, a doctorate, even though he's a practicing physician, not anymore, unless he's practicing in prison, um, you wouldn't go to this guy for anything. 
Because when you go to a doctor, you want the truth. You want, I want to know the seriousness of what's going on in my body. I want to know the, the, what needs to happen in order for me to be taken care of and for my diagnosis to be taken care of. So, we approach medical emergencies in different ways. First one is to do nothing and hope that it gets better. We've all known people that they've got something going on, they know it's bad, but they hope that, you know, with time and with a little just bit of sheer just, you know, will that it's going to get better. Or the other approach is to do everything necessary for survival. Now, which medical approach would you want your doctor to take? Well, this doctor took the first approach, right? Kind of just really do nothing or do un- unnecessary things. We're going to read this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And the Apostle Paul is really acting like a skilled surgeon in the church. And he's come across some diagnoses, he's seen some things happening in the church that really, he says, we need to take notice of these things. He's not the kind of doctor that says, oh, it's not a big deal. We can just wait. Hopefully it gets better. No, he goes head on and really takes this thing and, and, and says, look, this is the diagnosis. This is what we need to do in order to see the church taken care of. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're looking at verses 1 through 5. So after he just went, he's gotten through talking about divisions in the church and the hope of Jesus Christ, now he moves on to some more things that are more pertinent to what's going on for them right now. It says, it is actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord." Now, what approach does the Apostle Paul take with this in particular guy? Is he the, the kind of do-nothing guy, or is he the, the guy that's going to do everything possible to make sure the church is cared for? Right? He's, he's the number two guy. He says, look, we need to deal with this. We need to deal with this. This is very important. See, what's happening in the church is the guy is sleeping with his stepmother. Now, this could possibly be, I mean, this could possibly be we're not quite 100% certain that this is probably a stepmother, but it might actually be his mother. We're not, we're just, we're, we're guessing, we're saying it's probably a stepmother, but it might actually be his mother. That's how serious this thing is. In, in Jewish and in Roman culture in the day, this was not to be tolerated. So even in culture, it wasn't like there was something going on in the church that the culture said was okay, and the church says, hey, look, no problem, we'll, We'll, we'll just kind of turn a blind eye to this. This was unacceptable everywhere. This wasn't acceptable in the culture. This was, not, this was not okay. It wasn't like this was a new radical transition into a, a greater freedom. No, no, no. This was frowned upon everywhere. And what the church is doing, he talks about being so arrogant. 
The church is saying, look, look how free that we are in Jesus Christ. Look how open and accepting we are. Look how tolerant we are. Look, we've even got some stuff going on here that nobody agrees is right. But we're so tolerant that we even accept this. See, the church is made to be a prophetic people. Prophetic people meaning this, that we, we demonstrate by our lives together what Almighty God looks like. The way that He cares for people or the way that we care for one another. The way that God loves people is the way that we as God's people love one another and love the people around us. We're to be a prophetic people. And when the church ceases to follow in the ways of God, ceases to, to, to act in the way that God has called us to act, we no longer have that prophetic voice into the world around us. God's called us to be a prophetic people. So in the name of tolerance, they forsook their identity. They no longer became that prophetic people any longer. Is the church even at that point distinct from the culture in any way? So what does the Apostle Paul say to do? He says this, exercise church discipline. He says, look, there's only one thing possible for you to do at this moment. Exercise church discipline. See, here's, here's part of the problem. When something's going on in, in, in the body, when something's going on in a family or with an individual that needs to be addressed and we turn a blind eye to it or pretend like it's not a big deal, it's not loving or caring towards that person or that family. Man, in, in many ways, it's actually hatred. I knew someone, never went to this church, who was a friend of mine, and their marriage unraveled in a matter of days. It was unbelievable and heartbreaking to watch. And after the tsunami hit their marriage, we couldn't pre- I couldn't pretend like things are just normal anymore between us. There's some things that came to light, some things that some addictions, some some things that were in the dark that now we're in the light, and we couldn't go back to the way things used to be. So look, I know. I know your wife. I know your kids. But this relationship, man, I am concerned for you. And we can't just go back to hanging out and, and just kind of chumming around. Man, we've got to talk about these things for the sake of your family, for the sake of your own soul. I love you that much that we need to go there. We need to talk about these things. These things need to be addressed. And therefore, that's going to, that's going to affect our relationship from here on out. Because these things are so vital to the testimony of Jesus Christ and so vital for your own soul and for your family and for your children that we have got to address these things. That I love you that much. And for me to pretend like everything's fine and that your family isn't falling apart and your wife isn't broken and your kids aren't broken, man, that's not loving towards you. That's hatred. So the Apostle Paul says, look, you as a church, as a family, These things need to be dealt with, severely dealt with, on the spot, right now. Don't wait. Don't put it off. Don't pretend like it's going to get better. They need to be dealt with. So this is not an opportunity for the church to celebrate how tolerant it can be. As a prophetic people, as God's people, as God's family, these things need to be addressed. Why is this so important? Well, we're going to look at 
verses 6 through 8. And in verses 6 through 8, we're going to see why this is so vital for the church to address. It says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. With sincerity and truth. Now he makes reference back to the Passover. This is a significant point of history for the Jewish nation. And so the Passover was the tenth and final plague before the children of Israel left the bondage of Egypt, before they, they started the exodus out of slavery. And what happened was, is in this, final, in this final plague, God said the firstborn of every family was going to die. The firstborn of, of all cattle and the firstborn of all people would die in Egypt, unless, unless you took a, you took a lamb, you sacrificed the lamb, you killed the lamb, and took the blood of the lamb, put it over the doorpost of your home. And that way, the, the, the judgment, the punishment would pass over your family. And so it's called the Passover, that you wouldn't be affected by the judgment. And so everyone in the home who, who killed the lamb and put the blood over the doorpost of their home were safe. And everyone who did not do that, they lost the firstborn son. But along with the blood over the doorpost, the Israelites were to get rid of all the leaven in their homes. See, they had to travel quickly because after this judgment took place, the Israelites were to leave immediately. And so they had to, they had to bake quickly, they had to eat quickly, they had to go on the run. And so this leaven was to be cleaned out of the homes. And for them, it was an illustration for them, the leaven was something that corrupts, something that corrupts the whole lump of dough. See, Paul is using this illustration of leaven here as pointing to, pointing to something greater in Jesus Christ. See, in Jesus Christ, he has become for us the climatic and once and final Passover lamb. That this celebration of the Passover and the exodus out of Egypt points to the person and work of Jesus Christ. See, in Jesus Christ, his blood has been put upon our lives. And the punishment that we deserve for our sins has been passed over. That in Jesus Christ, that Passover and judgment was put upon Jesus Christ. He gave his life as the sacrificial lamb for our sins. And now our sin is passed over. And we're given life and freedom and relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, what that also does for us is this, is that we, in that moment, we're also given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And our unrighteousness, our disobedience is taken away. 5 verse 7 says this, as you really are unleavened. The, corrupt, the corruption's been removed. We're pure once again. And this, this is the effect of the gospel, a cleansed life given of righteousness to ourselves of Jesus Christ. See, the grace of God, the mercy of God, doesn't give us a free pass to do whatever we please. It gives us the power and the strength and the motivation to walk in the ways of Jesus Christ. 
That's what the grace of God does. It doesn't just give us a pass to do whatever we please. It's not just a free pass. The grace of God says this, I'm going I'm to empower you to live lives that honor the Lord. Now, he doesn't stop there because he goes on. He goes from this specific incident of this guy. Then he talks and unpacks the gospel. Now he moves to more general things in verses 9 through 13. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. So apparently there was a previous letter where they had asked him about how do we relate to other people. And he says, look, stay away from the sexually immoral people. And so they interpreted that as being everybody. He says, no, no, you misunderstood me. He says, look, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of this world. There's no way to avoid everyone like that. It's impossible. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging others? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, let's talk about another kind of surgeon. So the first surgeon we talked about was the nose doctor, right? Who should have taken care of things, but obviously had no, no desire to do so and just would, would buy and treat cancer like it was the common cold. I want to introduce you to Aaron Ralston. Have you ever heard of Aaron Ralston? Has anyone heard of Aaron Ralston? Okay. On April 26, 2003, Aaron Ralston was hiking through western Wayne County, Utah. While he was descending on a slot canyon, a suspended boulder which became dislodged while he was climbing down from it in the canyon crushed his right hand against the canyon wall. Ralston had not informed anyone of his hiking plans, so no one would have been searching for him. Assuming that he would die, he spent five days slowly sipping his small amount of remaining water, which was approximately 12 fluid ounces, and slowly eating his small amount of food, which was two burritos. And while trying to extricate his arm, his efforts were futile as he could not free his arm from the 800-pound stone. After three days of trying to lift and break the boulder, the dehydrated and delirious Ralston prepared to amputate his trapped right arm at a point in the mid-forearm in order to escape. He experimented with tourniquets and made some exploratory superficial cuts on his forearm in the first few days. On the fourth day, he realized that in order to free his arm, he would have to cut through his bone. But the tools he had available were insufficient to do so. So on the fifth day, he runs out of water. So he began, he carved his name, his date of birth, and his presumed date of death in a sandstone canyon wall and videotaped his last goodbyes to his family. He did not expect to survive the night. After waking at dawn the following day, he had an epiphany that he would break his radius and ulna bones using a torque against the trapped arm. He did so, then performed the amputation, which he took about one hour with his multi-tool, which included a dull two-inch knife. He never named the manufacturer of the tool he used, other than to say it was not a Leatherman. (laughs) But... 
He said, but what you would get if you bought a $15 flashlight and got a free multi-use tool. <laughs> it may seem like the Apostle Paul goes on the extreme and goes Aaron Ralston on the church. But he realizes what's at stake. He realizes the testimony of Jesus Christ is at stake. He realizes the, the, the community of believers and the effect that it has. If you've ever, growing up, had a, had a friend whose parents had an addiction or there was idolatry in terms of just worshiping a job, parents weren't around, where there was infidelity in the marriage, you know the disastrous effects that has on that family. We've all seen it. Maybe that's been your experience in your own family growing up. It rips a family apart. He says this in verse 8, that we are to celebrate the festival with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. See that with all sin, there's a lie behind that sin that says this is no big deal. That this only affects you. That no one else will be affected by this. That no one will know. I want to read a quote from Noel Bitterman. He's the CEO of Ashley Madison. Ashley Madison, if you're unaware, is a website that... Um, was is a website that you were you'd be able to log on to and create an account and it would guarantee a um, that you could cheat on your spouse. So it was, it was given purely for people who wanted to cheat upon their spouses. And so this is the the Ashley Madison. This all, a couple weeks ago, it, the whole database of Ashley Madison was downloaded. You could see who was who was on the database. It was absolutely devastating for for many people, for many families. So this interviewer asked the, the CEO of Ashley Madison, is this website purely given to the, 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 the infidelity of marriages? And they asked the, the CEO of Ashley Madison, is cheating bad? Is cheating bad? He says this, undiscovered cheating is good. I have come to accept that. When people hide behind breaking trust, they didn't succeed with monogamy, if my wife cheated, I wouldn't blame an inanimate object. I would say, what need did I fail to meet that made her go down that path? Now get this. He says this, cheating is like the secret glue that keeps millions of marriages together. I would cheat before I would leave. Now, it's insane to think that there... The, the, the lie behind these things, right? You can see where there's, there's, there's the lie. So look, no, this is a good thing. Look, this keeps marriages together. I would, ha I would have to argue, look, buddy, you're telling me that with your database being released and the people finding out who's on the database, you're telling me that that was a good thing for those marriage, like that was a good thing those guys, those women were unfaithful to their spouses that actually held that marriage together? I'd say it's the very thing that ripped them apart. Sexual immorality and fidelity in the marriage doesn't keep marriages together. It completely rips them apart. 
And if someone professes allegiance to Jesus Christ and is contrary to everything Jesus calls us to and saved us from, this deception needs to be addressed. Plain and simple. It needs to be addressed. It needs to be talked to. It needs to be talked about because everyone in the family is affected by our actions. Our sin, the the way that we live our lives has a profound effect on one another. It absolutely does. Even for a small church family like this, the way that we conduct ourselves before the Lord and before each other has a profound effect on one another. Jesus saved us from a life of being deceived. He called us to live in the light of who He is. He's called us and made us a family and given us His righteousness. And this comes with a responsibility towards one another. It comes with a responsibility that we would love each other so much and care about each other that much that when we see things in one another's lives that need to be addressed, we wouldn't turn a blind eye. We wouldn't turn away. We wouldn't pretend like it's no big deal. That we would, in love, in grace, in care, we would address things with one another. This is the way that God has called us to be. This is the family who God has made us into. That's why it's so important. That's why it's so important for us to be part of a a family part of a church family because apart from this who else is there to, to, to help us and call us out on things to address things in each other's lives see God's grace helps us to walk in the light that's what God's given us to do I want to just end by just focusing our attention on Jesus Christ See, the grace of God in Jesus Christ is that even for this this individual who has been severely chastised, who's been disciplined severely, the hope of all discipline is not punitive. It's not like, hey, we're just going to get you now because you did something stupid. No, the hope of all discipline is, is redemptive. There's a redemptive element to discipline in our lives. It's the way God... God's given us the gift of discipline so he could re- we could be redeemed from the, our foolish ways. Discipline is, is a grace of God in our lives. Whether it's from his hand directly or as a church, discipline is a grace because it's always redemptive. The hope for this guy is not that he would be utterly destroyed, it's that he would be saved in the day of the Lord. That's the hope of discipline. That's the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. There's redemption. There's repentance. There's restoration. That's what we have in Jesus Christ. I want to just encourage us as we close that if there's anything that we need to repent of, that we need to go to Jesus with, that we would be quick to do so. If there's things that we need to confess, we need to bring up to the Lord, that we would do so quickly. That we wouldn't have to get to a place where this kind of discipline would need to come down, but that we would be quick to come to a place saying, Jesus, I need to repent before you and receive your grace and your mercy. I need your redemption in my life, in this area of my life. God is gracious. But it's not a liberty to do whatever we want. It's a grace that helps us to stay near to him, to love him, to walk in the light. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we take a moment now as we prepare to celebrate communion 
and your gift of your sacrifice, the gift of life. Lord, I ask that you would help us and convict us. God, of the areas in our lives that we need to repent before you and find grace to change. Jesus, thank you that your discipline is redemptive, that your discipline brings us near to you, not pushes us farther away. God, that our hope is in you. So, Lord, I pray, soften our hearts. Give us that grace to repent. Help us to find the mercy that we need in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.